Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Najahi Events. More about them later. Today's guest, we're joined by a man who's witnessed many horrific events during his 30-year career in the Essex Police Force. He worked as a detective on many levels, including Detective Chief Inspector, and has worked on some of the most high-profile murder cases in the UK. People might wonder why someone would continue to do a job that can be so gruesome and hard-hitting at times. But for him, it's all about bringing criminals to justice and providing closure for the families of victims. He retired from the police force in 2016 and is now the founder and managing director of X-Job Community Volunteers, which is a volunteer group dedicated to helping ex-services individuals to find work in the private sector. He's clearly extremely passionate about his work, helping others and bringing about justice where it's due. I'm really delighted to introduce you to Paul Maliri. Paul, you've, you've got such a, an interesting track record of being in the police. You've even got up to Detective Chief Inspector. Uh, a lot of us are kind of mesmerized by the glamorization of the police force, um, but also the day-to-day -day realities we have to consider as well, the kind of stuff that you go through when we try and understand how challenging it must be to be a police officer. So, you know, you've got the cops and robbers bit, but then you've got the... You know, we, as, as my guests will know on the show, we, we deal with some really challenging issues. One of the ladies that was on our show uh, in Belgium was sold to a paedophile ring when she was six years old by her mum uh, from the age of six to the age of 11. Um, was every weekend was off and with politicians and wealthy people in Brussels and Belgium. And you hear these types of stories, but then you think about the, the journey a police officer must have to go on when they're working in certain departments. And, you know, it can be quite, can be quite scary and... and, and depressing almost but what's your perspective on it well first of all thanks so much for having me on here I'm, I'm really looking forward to this but my perspective is it's a fantastic job you know we everything you do you do because you want to be in the police well that's what I did um, my dad was a copper my uncles were coppers we've had somebody in the police service since 1934 I've still got a nephew who works for a, a police service and my cousin's in the Garda so it's great, but I think I've said before that it makes for a boring Christmas dinner for our partners because at the end of the day, they've heard it all before. They've heard all the crass jokes and all the rubbish that goes with it. But it is a fantastic job. Yes, it's very sad, but the fact is that I spent eight years working on a major investigation team and we dealt with murders, abductions, rapes and extortions. Fascinating, fascinating. Travelled the world. Yes, it could be depressing, but actually it was the real life stuff that was probably more depressing to me. The more personal stuff, friends dying within service, it, you know, it's, it is, they're the things that affect you. I could talk you through every post-mortem that I've ever attended, every death, the first fatal road collision that I went to, but more poignant are the things that happened to my friends whilst I was in there. Have I been scared? Yes, I was scared. Um, I was in, I had a bit part in the London riots. We were in a nice part of London and it was like, you've got to make your way to another part of London. And my backside was going half crown sixpence, if I'm perfectly honest with you, because you're thinking you're going to get it at the other end because you knew your mates were getting it. Um, so, yeah, but it's a, it's a fantastic and 30 years well spent as far as I'm concerned. I, f I feel for the guys and girls that go in there now. 
um, because they've got a different set of problems to deal with. There's more of the online stuff, which was already there by the time I'd left. The county line situation, I was an undercover manager. I managed um, people that would go out into the community by drugs and guns. Fantastic. And, the, you know, brave people, they go out there. You you wouldn't sell them from anybody else. As far as you're concerned, they are local heroin users or whatever it may be. But that's a tough gig when they're going in to buy illicit items from somebody's house. That's scary. You know, so, yeah, it's a, it is a great job, though. Now, we had the George Floyd thing happen recently, and you must have followed that in the news in America. There seems to be kind of like a bit of a, um, a, a hatred towards the police in some, some parts of the United States. Have you ever experienced that yourself? What, hatred towards me? Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose I have. I mean, look, when you, uh, when you lock somebody up for a long time, the hatred of that person that you're locking up is, is there. Um, it's hard, you can't say to people, don't take it personally, because they're going to, aren't they? At the end of the day, this is about their liberty. And if they're facing 10, 15 years for supplying drugs or life for murder, or it could be three years, you know, but the fact is that you're destroying what they've got around, around you. So, I mean, like we had a guy turn up at our home. Uh, he'd, he'd been stealing cars from Vauxhalls at Luton. And what he actually did was he'd, it's, they were Fronteras, that show you how long ago it was, and he typed out the V5, the vehicle registration document, and he typed it out on a, a typewriter. And we went into his yard, found some vehicles, found these V5 documents. He gets arrested, gets placed out on bail. Next thing you know, there's this bloke standing outside my house. I live down a quiet country lane. My wife says, who's this bloke? And it's, and it's some guy that I'm dealing with. You know, So they're the things that... Uh, it's about what affects your family. Um, but yeah, I've, I've experienced hatred. I mean, it's, um, but you know what, I'm still here. So, so you know, you go back in, in history in, in, in the olden days and you see how crime used to be dealt with and, you know, then, you know, CSI came on the telly and we all knew learned about forensics and, and DNA samples and that kind of stuff, which kind of like changed the, the landscape. And you, you, in your career, have been all the way through that journey, haven't you? When, well, yeah. So, so, walk, so, tell, so walk me through that, you know, you, you have a crime scene of whatever that crime may be. And in the olden days, uh, uh, compared to how it would have been in your latter years, how would a crime scene or the investigation of a crime scene change? Well, it's... To be fair, DNA, one of the first convictions in the UK was the murder of a, a girl called Fiona Gallant. And she was uh, taken by a lorry driver and killed. That's That must be 1987. So I hadn't been in the police very long. I joined in 86. So we were all, already at that point forensically aware. But it improved with time because there had been... You, you only have to look at the catalogue of disasters around some of the high-profile cases where... Uh, there'd been a mix-up in, in forensics. The playing cards around the, the I think it was the Guildford or, or Birmingham pub bombers, you know, all these types of things. So I think forensics, when I joined, were being driven into us. But it didn't stop people making mistakes, you know, you, you, going into a crime scene, people putting their foot into things. They There was a naivety about it, but I think they're far more professional in the way that they do forensic recovery now. I think they've um, reduced the numbers far too 
many people have been moved around or whatever you're around the forensics teams and and therefore they're not able to concentrate but what i will say is if you're involved as a if your family's involved in a um, major crime you get a premium service you don't there is nothing else you get the best service ever from a forensics department and whether again if that's a murder abduction a rape extortion uh, fatal road collisions the, the difference is now that you've got police officers that have got degrees in this stuff. You know, they they know their shit, basically, excuse my language, but you know, they, they know their stuff. And they're far more professionals, but they've got more teams in the premiership now, which dilutes the actual police department. You know, you've got so many hived off teams, whereas in the day, get that blue lamp out, um, you had the CID, the uniform, traffic, special branch, and then it's evolved into major crime. And I mean, you, you're talking about an era when I joined. It was the Sweeney, Life on Mars, all all the things that you can imagine. My first um, my first major incident was on the 31st of March 1989, and a young lad was kidnapped, and his family held hostage and. He ran a local bank in Essex, and they emptied the bank of the money. And these guys were old hats. They'd done it all before. They'd done it at Tesco's, and, and they were vile, absolutely vile. The, the main guy, Schultz, ended up sending uh, Christmas cards when he got convicted to the SIO, threatening, threatening him, and he's, he's dead now. Um, that, was, that was my first major incident, and it, it, it's fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. People will pay money to do that sort of thing. And so when, 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 I, when I think about it, you know, it, I look at how crime operates today and I look at how the blockchain has changed the way that money moves. I've looked into the, the deep web um, and understanding more about what's going on there that, that you know, most, most people on the street are, are completely oblivious to. It must be much harder to find the perpetrators of crime than ever before nowadays. Would that be true? Or because it's all digital, it's easier to find a trail and, and, and the criminals aren't as smart as you would think they would be? Well, let's be honest. The police only ever catch the stupid ones. You know, they, they, really, they really do. And it's the ones that over-egg it. Um, the online profile, how does somebody go from driving a, a Ford Fiesta to a Porsche overnight? It doesn't happen, you know. You can't, and and I think that they they play into the hands of the law um, law enforcement. They'll always overdo it. They'll go and buy themselves a nice new Rolex and uh, earn themselves twenty thousand pounds a year, and then wonder why somebody's having a look at them. It's you know it's gross stupidity. If there was an extra charge, a criminal charge of gross stupidity, that's what most of these people should get. Wow. And then you've got the, you know, the, 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 famous, the famous crimes. You, know, the, the, you look at things you know, in the past, like the great train robbery. Um, I'm, I, met Ronnie, I used to live in Brazil, and I met Ronnie Briggs over there. And, and, and then you've got you know, the, the famous stories of the, the behavior of the craze and sensationalized almost in terms of what they did. Were, were, were criminals, I, I don't even want to say this, but were criminals more honest back in the olden days than they are now? Oh, well, there's that, that misnomer that um, 
They were lovely. Those Cray boys were the best boys ever. They used to help my nan cross the road. Yeah, all right, they might have. <laughs> but they were also breaking somebody else's kneecaps. And, you know, that's the fact. The, the, there'll always be a good side. There'll always be a Robin Hood story wrapped around all of these people. Oh, they took them out of poverty. Yeah, but they were getting their children to serve up a load of heroin on the street corners. So it's whatever way you carve it up, I have met some very, very um, honourable criminals. I've met some, I've met fascinating murderers. And I mean that, they are absolutely fascinating. And, and, and when you talk to them, they could ch charm the birds out of the trees. They're, they're such, you know, but actually they're cold hearted killers. They've killed somebody, they've taken somebody's life. And, but they are fascinating people. Policing has evolved to a really, you know, really high standard. The problem is that, and this is very critical of the modern police service, they're so reliant on modern tactics and modern techniques that they sometimes forget that there is a human side that can be identified by carrying out the legwork. We work for a number of different people. I mean, some really people that you would know that I'm not going to discuss on here, but we work for people who have been let down badly by the authorities. And I'll put people out and they'll go and do house to house for, you know, individuals who have had, the, had a burglary. We've got no authority. We're just, we're just, that's what we do. We've got a team of retired coppers and they go knocking on people's doors. Hello, Mrs. Miggins, have you got CCTV? Yes, dear. Well, can, can, can you send us a, yes, dear, of course I can. It's, but it's using that and that's what doesn't happen. And that's my frustration at the moment around, there's always, oh, we haven't got enough time, we haven't got enough stuff. I get that. The austerity cuts have been absolutely overwhelming. The Essex is not the same place. Um, you know, if you know the area, the police stations are closed. There's nowhere for people to go and seek sanctuary. But, but the fact is, it doesn't, you, you shouldn't lose your basic coppering te techniques. And that's where I think that they've lost it. When you take Essex as a county, where we're both from, and you compare it over the years, you say that the austerity cuts means that, does it mean there's less police on the streets? Does it mean That's that there's right. more crime being committed, a combination of both? So here's the thing, right? Yes, there are less police officers on the street. Are there less police officers? The local PCC will tell you not, but the fact is there are less police officers per capita. There's 1.7 million people living in this county. We've got the longest shoreline in the country. You've got the M11, A13, A12, A127, Stansted Airport, seven tube stations. Yet they're the most underfunded police service in the country, or they certainly were, because they weren't getting enough money out of the council tax. But of course, then there's a, there's a knock on from that. But I'm not going to get on my political high horse around it. But there aren't the boots on the streets. And I think that we are now in a position where the, um, the younger Bobbies can't do anything right. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Does it, they, they can't do right for doing wrong. They try their hardest. They'll try and investigate a crime for you and I, and bless them, it means they might be neglecting someone else because there's a constant drip of work coming in. What I will say is that the police have evolved really well when it comes to dealing with domestic violence, child abuse, things that we would say, um, oh yes, yeah, just just a domestic, you know, husband and wife have an argument. So I do, I do feel, I do feel for them, but you know, it is what it is. Um, but there's some, there's some great people out there still. They're still working hard. 
So you've been through. I want to, you know, the audience right now are going to want to know some 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 info about some cases. Now, there's one case where you were dealing with a, a husband that or a man that killed his partner and decapitated her, murdered her and decapitated her. Yeah, I, 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 it was um, a lady who's a South African national. And at the time, uh, we had a number of um, different countries that came in and they were, you know, refugees, what, what have you. But she split up from her husband, uh, dropped the kids off at school and the husband uh, had got the ache because they'd, they'd split up. He went and bought himself a knife from the local army and navy, which he honed up as, as perfectly as he possibly could. And um, as she dropped the kids off from school, he decapitated her. As she walks away... What, outside of school? Outside of school, yeah, in Southend. And, you know, that's... Now, I went, to, I went with the boss, my boss, um, to the post-mortem. And that is a sight that I will always remember. I will never forget. I will. Ne I don't forget any of them, but that is one that was particularly um, gruesome. And and how's this for your luck? At the same time, there was a, an ambulance that was. There was there was a TV crew with an ambulance, and they were they were doing the ambulance chasing stuff. You know, flying the wall documentary, and the uh, ambulance driver turns up. Got the cameraman there. Cameraman gets out and literally passes out and throws up at the same time. He's just because it's horrendous. It's hor it is it's a full on, you know, it's a murder. We had um, a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago called um, Posh Pete was his name. He was um, from Gloucestershire, studying the classics at Cardiff University, ended up becoming a drug dealer and went over to uh, met some people from Colombia, went over to Ecuador. Uh, cocaine was um, uh, embedded, not embedded, was it impregnated in the rubber base of um, tents, camping stuff. Yeah. And he brought it back and uh, was fine. Went back over again and did it um, and got caught and went to jail in Ecuador for 12 years. And in February of this year, there were riots in the jail. And we, we were sent the video footage from him directly. Um, we obviously had to blur it all out, but of people being beheaded as well as people having their hearts cut out um like really horrible stuff and i don't have a, a stomach for that kind of stuff and and alicia uh, my producer had to watch all of the videos to use the various footage for the for the podcast episode and i just i just felt so bad that she had to go through it and look at it all um, it has quite an impact and a lasting impact. And she's tough as old boots, but I'm sure it really, you know, moved her, even though that was, you know, 7,000 miles away in a country that you'd never been to. Yeah. Do you, do you, when you experience stuff like this, apart from it being gruesome, did, you must, you must feel for the victims. Oh, massively. But I feel more for the families, if I'm honest with you, because the victim... They're already dead. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do for them, but the family have to survive it. And if it's um, if it's a member of the family that's killed another member of the family, uh, it, you know there are so many issues wrapped around that. But yeah, you do feel, of course, you feel for the victim. But you have to get to the point where you've got a job to do. Okay, so so. In a, in a major investigation, I was one of a number of people. I was a I was a grunt. I was the I was a DC. 
I did the acting sergeant on there. It was only later on that I got promoted and so on and so forth. So I didn't have any responsibility on there other than I interviewed a significant number of people. And, but, but I could have done anything from disclosure. I mean, Danielle Jones, she went missing in 2001, June 2001. There were thousands and 40, 50,000 items of disclosure that we had to go through as a team. This is what's lost. Murders are not solved in one hour. You know, it's, it's an absolute fallacy. And when you get uh, the contents of a filing cabinet or whatever it may be, you have to go through that and you have to make sure that the appropriate test is applied to see whether it's sensitive, non-sensitive, can be disclosed. You have to do all of that as a team. So you'd, be, you'd have your disclosure officer, your action allocator, um, your statement reader, your office manager, your family liaison officer. Now, if you think there are dodgy, horrible jobs to undertake, that is what they are the most unsung heroes of a murder because they have to go and spend time quality time with a grieving family it could be the case that that grieving family includes one of the suspects so they are on edge they don't get told anything other than the fact that go and deal with this family they'll get a briefing from the sio but the fact is they don't get told that there's a suspect in there until some considerable time because they can't be um, influenced in their decisions. They can't be looking at someone and think, oh, do you know what? Oh, you're, yeah, you're the suspect. Because the minute they start giving things away, it could blow the case completely. And that is such a stressful role. I, I did it a number of times. And that is, that is a bloody hard role. Let's talk about the Rettenden murders quickly because I, I have a particular interest in it. Obviously, I read the books, watched the TV show, and I, I was particularly interested in it because as a boy, I dated the daughter when I was at, at secondary school of the of the farm owner where this all took place, the Theobald's Farm in Rettenden. Uh, so for those of you that are listening and watching this right now, Rettenden is a, a place in Essex, a nondescript place pretty much between uh, Southwood and Ferrers and Wickford, which again are both nondescript places. I'm <laughs> sure um, the residents will be pleased to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's not much apart from it being, you know, the uh, outer Essex, southern part of Essex. And... There, there was famously um, uh, a movie made about them. There were books made about them, about these guys that basically were drug dealers and, and, and troublemakers and gangsters through Essex. Uh, and it all led to their downfall along the way during the, the, the kind of the, the time that drugs like ecstasy started to kind of see a rise in popularity and this thing that we call the rave scene started to exist in larger larger numbers or existences in the in the uk um i obviously when and i was a kid at school i mean i can hardly call him a girlfriend i mean i'm sure the relationship lasted six weeks it might have been my longest relationship ever <laughs> but um but as a kid at school, you know, it's like then when you know it's that farm and it's, you know, Kate's dad, um, it's it's really interesting to learn about. So just just give me an, an understanding of, 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 of what happened and what you saw from your side and how that how those crimes were solved. So um, I didn't work on that job, but I did have a, a, a tenuous link. 
There were three people, Tate, Tucker and Rolf, and they were taken to the farm in a Range Rover and executed in the Range Rover. It subsequently came to light that um, two people who have been convicted, uh, Jack Wombs and Mick Steele, um, came to light that they were the ones responsible. It, they ca it came to light because of a man called, I believe his name was Darren Nichols, and Nichols was a police informant, but unbeknownst to me, he was a police informant in my office for two of my colleagues. And that was probably one of the most stressful parts of my police service because we came under a lot of scrutiny as a result of alleged um, malpractice. What I will say is both those individuals stood trial at the Crown Court and, and were subsequently found not guilty. But it was a, an interesting time, let's say that. Uh, I think one of them's just been released actually. I know that there's a there's a, an organisation that's doing a review of the, the police evidence, but as far as I'm aware, the um, police evidence was accurate and that they were convicted correctly. Um, when you when you when you as a as a policeman see the murder of a well-known criminal does it just do you have that kind of like well there's one less on the streets mindset no i mean it goes back to that human factor again i suppose you've you've always got that in your mind it's like well if you if they've been killed and if you get the the person responsible then actually you've got two people off the streets that's you know that's that's reality. You, the, the backdrop of um, the retinence stuff, you had Leah Betts who had just passed away. There was some suggestion around um, around that, a connection with that. At, I, I think it was Raquel's in, in Bowserlin. So, yeah, you, you know, we've all got an opinion, haven't we, around, around criminality. Um, do they deserve to die? No, of course they don't deserve to die. Um, do they deserve to be brought to justice? Yes. Yes, they do, because what they were doing was illegal. The stuff that they were doing, was, it had an impact on so many other people's lives. But, you know, you, you've had other... Um, I forgot the name of the other chap that was killed shortly afterwards, taken from Billericay into Kent and killed and put in the boot of a car there. There are a number of different... I mean, you, you know the area well, but there are a number of different criminal elements that reside, even now, even today. But they've become more sophisticated. The online markets that you were talking about earlier on, uh, you know, the, the scams, the drug dealing, it's become very, very complex. People have got access to more things, boats and planes, and, you know, there's, there's bigger risk and greater reward. Um, but the, but you used to have armed robberies. I mean, I, I don't know. I might be totally wrong, but I couldn't tell you last time there was a cash-in-transit robbery, which would have been formed by a number of these different people because it's moved on to the selling of coke and, and coke has become a, a popular habit of the you know the, the posh boys and girls now you know well, judge Lindell was complaining about it the other week on on twitter because he said it's not acceptable to go to dinner party with friends who are and he's a he's a judge a barrister who who feel that it's okay to take coke when next week they'll be prosecuting the same people so you know it's um the, the world has changed around criminality from that perspective there there, there, there was a cash in transit job done uh, i think it was security express and it was out of north london near wembley i forgot the name uh, very close to wembley north london um 
And Security Express was a cash in transit business that was set up. I know the owner of that business. And I also, you know, and what I'm, well, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this, but I don't care. Um, and so there, there was a, a very strong link with the Freemasons um, and some benefits because of that. It ended up that the money went missing and nobody, nobody got in trouble. So I worked on that job. Okay. You're talking about the guy from Southwood and Ferris that um, actually took the, the cash, took the money. So, no, I'm talking about the guy that owns Security Express. Oh, okay. I mean, I didn't, I didn't work on that, but I worked on the other one where in Southwood and Ferris, the chap nicked the, the, the lorry load of money, the million pounds, um, and then fled the country and got caught about eight years ago, I suppose, out in Florida. His family grasped him up. Um, I mean, his, family, his family dobbed him in. Yeah, his daughter-in-law. Um, I mean, look, look, I, I mean, I'm interested in the in the the, the Freemason perspective because I I am I make no bones about it and I'm I'm a rubbish one because I don't go but um, I don't think I've got to be honest with you I'm not sure that the, the Freemasons afford you any more benefits than being a member of the local liberal club I suppose. Well. I am um, uh, okay, so I'm the only person in my family that's not a Mason. <laughs> <laughs> I was the only one that wasn't invited in, but my grandfather was a grandmaster, my uncle Ray's a grandmaster, and uh, yeah, there's there's a big connection through my mum's side of the family to the lodges. Um, in uh, in and around, I think it might be Southend, Hockley, that yeah. that kind of area. It, it's so interesting. It is interesting because, um, as I say, I'm pretty failed. I don't I don't go anymore, and um, but I will defend them to the point where. The first organisation that made a donation following the tsunami were the Masonics, and they paid half a million pounds. The problem that is that they don't ever, ever publicise the good work that they do. And people, and you know, no disrespect, but people only ever take the sinister side of it. And because Freemasonry in the police service was rife. I mean, you're talking in the 70s and early 80s, Operation Countryman, where they, there was an intrinsic link between Freemasonry and the police service and corrupt police officers and all are there corrupt police officers? Yeah, there's still corrupt police officers. Of course there are. Different type of corruption now. Um, yeah, but this all comes back down to the same thing with everybody and everything. You can do 99 things right and do one thing wrong and you'll get measured for that one yeah, thing you do wrong. So, and, and that's, that's, that's throughout everything that exists on this planet when it comes to human yeah. beings. Um, yeah. and, 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 and unfortunate as it is because we're all either victims or party to it. Now, you left the police force in 2016. Yeah. Retired, you'd been in the police force for how long? 30 years to the day when I left. 30 years in the police force. You got a big... I <laughs> But yeah, but you got a big whopping pension. Oh, Come out you. of it. 30 years service. You must have been on blooming double final salary or something amazing. But then... Then so so how old were you when you came out of the police? So that's that's two thousand and sixteen. So you're fifty. Fifty one. Same age as I am right now. That you're still young. So so do you come out of the police force and worry when you've been institutionalized into something for so long? You know, essentially you've worked for one company for so many years. Is it scary? Yeah, of course it is. It's a bereavement. You know, you you've you've handed back a piece of plastic that was gonna save your life, you know, your little warrant card. Um, I had to pay for my tube travel as well. I mean, how dare they after you leave? <laughs> you know, you used to get tube tube travel with an Essex warrant card because we had tubes in, in, the, in the area. Um, 
yeah it, it was it was a strange feeling um did you experience did you experience loneliness after yeah i did to a certain degree but i don't think um did i do i miss it i think that's that's the point i'm going to get to do i miss it i miss the i miss walking around the police station and you might find it's hard to believe and talking to everybody because my day would start if i turned up at harlow police station my day would start go and speak to the girls in the admin office if they weren't in at that point i'd go to the custody suite um everything all right size yes governor yeah fine brilliant and i'd work my way around the police station until i got to my office so that i made sure that everybody that's what i miss i mean i work here my, my boss now she's in the other room but you know i i, I work from home um life is good you know yes i did get a final salary pension i'm really sorry folks um but i did pay a lot of money towards it as well but um yeah it's a, it's a bereavement you're institutionalized and there are some people i miss and some people i don't miss it when you get a phone call from the senior team oh hi paul it's such and such year um uh, your burglaries are through the roof in Loughton and don't tell me you got, haven't got enough staff. And I'm thinking, well, what do you actually want me to say then? Do you want me to sugarcoat it and say that it's brilliant down in Loughton? And, that you know, the fact that the Met had 60 officers working in that area in 2000 and they've gone around to the square root of nothing. Um, it's it's almost a fantasy. But, um, yeah, you, I, I did miss it. But I was still, you know, I've got my kids are 29 and 30 now. I've got my grandchildren. Um, and we've got a nice business, you know, we, we help people. Um, but so tell me, before you tell me about the business, I want to ask about that. Tell me what, what are the options, the typical options someone retiring from the police force at 51 has in terms of career? Well, let me tell you that they, they do not earn you money. When you leave, your medals do not make you money, all right? That's, that's, that's the first fact. They've got so many options. The fact is that 99.9% .9 of them are honest. They turn up for work on time. They've got a good work ethic. They're real point and shoot. You know, it's a terrible phrase to use the old bill, but you know, you can actually say go and do. So they, they're decision makers. They're great communicators. They understand what customer focus is about. They don't know how to translate that into the outside world because they're doing it every day, and this is the institutionalized side of it. Um, but yeah, they're, fant they're fantastic people, and, and they're, not, they're not needy, most of them aren't needy, yeah, you get the odd one or two, but, they're, but they're, they're great people. They've got a great sense of humor, which is maybe a little bit dark sometimes, but they have got a great sense of humor. Um, and it is a, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic job, and they're fantastic people, but they've got so many options, they just don't know how to use them. And my job is to bring that out of them. So tell me about what you do. So um, in, if I take it back, 2011, I was out cycling. I know I don't look like a cycle now, and I don't now, actually. But um, I was out cycling with a mate. And he said, what are you going to do when you leave the old bill? And I said, well, there are a load of fantastic organisations that support the military. Absolutely, you know, absolutely right as well. Some of the things those guys have done. But there's no one to support the old bill, no one to support the police, there's no one to take the police forward once they leave that institution. They don't even get a resettlement period. You know, they don't get any training. They get two days on a course of, this is how you should invest your lump sum. Well, that doesn't help you get a job, does it? So 
I had this crazy idea. And then when I left, I started doing um, investigations around intellectual property. I've worked for some very, very large companies via a solicitor. And I got a little bit fed up of being the, um, how do I put it? The, the person that pull it all together. We had a job, pull, pull it all together. Someone else earned, earned a bucket load of cash out of it. So um, I set up X job and it's a recruitment and services site. And basically we have got a recruitment side and we do everything from drivers, COVID marshals, right the way through to Middle East contracts. So we've got that. And then we've got a services side where if you were a, a former police officer or military personnel at any rank, we help everybody. You could, you could have been the cleaner at Colchester Police Station. We'll help you. And um, if they've got their own businesses, they advertise for, with us for a few quid each month. And we push that round, social media, whatever it may take. And they, they pay pennies. But the big picture stuff is if I get enough people, then it, you know, it will pay. I've also got a, a volunteer group when COVID kicked in um, last March, I thought, well, you know, we've, we've got um, all these great people. How do we utilize the skills that they've got? Because actually it's important. So I set up X job community volunteers. Um, and that, yeah, I suppose it was, in some ways I, I used it to my benefit because it was the same branding. But I've got seven and a half thousand people now that are registered on social media sites, plus all the other stuff that we do. And we've done everything from, I've got a great volunteer um, up in, in um, Suffolk. He arranged for a, 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 a former officer to take the mother of a 12 week premature baby every day to Harlow, um, Harlow Hospital to see their 12 week old prem baby until that baby was able to leave every day. That, you know, they're heartwarming stories. We've done everything. We've still got people that go out and walk someone's dog in Cambridgeshire. We've, we've done COVID uh, volunteering around oximeters, you name it, they've done absolutely everything. Dug people's allotments, but they're all former police and all former military. And I'm really proud. If there's nothing else that we achieve, if my business goes belly up tomorrow, if that's all I achieve to get those people out there, I'm really proud of that because actually that means a lot my public service is still there you know whatever way you carve me up i'm still a copper i mean like it or lump it i'm still i've still got that passion for it so you essentially became an entrepreneur yeah i suppose i did really i mean luck sometimes but i think that as uh, i think as gary player said the harder i practice the luckier i become and uh, you know I, I think we work hard. We've got we've got great people that work for us, um, but they're trusted. They're not going to come into your house, clean your chimney, and nick your Rolex off the side. And if they do, guess what? I'm after them first. <laughs> you know, and that and that's. But you know, we we are lucky. Um, yeah. So I'm so lucky. so so you 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 sit down with an ex an ex policeman. He's got his retirement package. So his back's not against the wall from money. Um, he's probably paid his mortgage off over the years yep. and he's sitting there and, and he wants to keep busy but he wants to be fulfilled and you obviously give them give them options but what kind of stuff do they do they want to do do they want to learn really new skills and and, and, and the main or do they want to take what they've learned and be able to use that in something else I've got I mean, they've got so many skills I've got on our services site I've got a former chief superintendent whose wife is Sicilian um, 
and he's a massive fan of the jam and the godfather and all that and vespers and laborers and all that but he has got a pizza oven and he goes out at weekends former chief superintendent this is a guy that you know public order commander firearms commander all that goes out at weekends and makes pizzas at people's parties um we there's you name it there's everything that they're, they're some of the guys are one dimensional you know because you can't if, if you specialize too quickly when you join this police service it's more difficult to adapt once you leave and if you've if you've had a, a variety of different things that you've had to do over your 30 years then it's easier to adapt and overcome but um they do everything they do everything and, and they're really bright they the good thing about them is they have got the pension to fall back on to um they're not demanding from a, a money's perspective so they can keep themselves competitive in the market which is what we we do but we we have we've had some crazy things i mean we've had um we had one family who who I won't name, but they wanted a, uh, a Range Rover of a particular colour for their nine-year-old to be taken to Wimbledon when they flew in from the States. You know, and they, he was there for 20 minutes. Um, they also wanted a unicycle instructor to go to Hyde Park to teach the mother of the family how to ride a unicycle. And they paid for it and never turned up. You know, so, but we've got all these different people who've got all these different skills. Some people just want to play golf all the time. And I get that, you know, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. Um, I would go absolutely bonkers if I didn't have, if I didn't have the opportunity to do things that would drive me to distraction. Do you have ex-cons as friends? Yeah, I know. I've got I've got a number of friends who have been locked up. You know, it's it's human nature. Look. There are some some crimes that are abhorrent, and you know I, I I wouldn't tolerate and I wouldn't. But when when you sit down with someone, as you get older, you'll sit in a pub and you'll get to know people. Oh hi Paul, hi Paul, and then you'll have a drink with them, and they'll say, oh, do you know what I got locked up for burglary when I was sixteen? You know you, it's that's life, isn't it? That is how life goes, and you know I'm, I'm not saying burglary is anything, but they're for Therefore, the grace of God go I on some occasions. You know, did I like a tear up? Yes, I like to tear up. Like every, you know, I was. That's that was how life was. You know, and um, I, yeah, I've got mates who are, are, are criminals. I don't see them. I don't see them now, but do I keep in touch with them? Um, it's funny because when I was a kid in Colchester, and I had a mate. I was so. Here's the story. I was on a bus going to Cambridge United Football Club with Colchester United. Okay, I'm 16 years old, and um, we're driving down the road. We That's almost a derby, that. Well, yeah, it was. Everyone had a few beers. There's a bloke on there who's got one leg, and he kept taking it off and hopping down the down the bus. I mean, <laughs> it was hilarious. But we stopped, and one of the guys set lights or haystack. Um, we get on the bus to come back. You know, we thought we were. The mutts nuts and um coppers get on local inspector gets on oh welcome to cambridge on the way in some bright spark ha 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 set lights on a haystack you're all nicked you're all nicked i'll get taken in to the custody suite at um parkside in, in cambridgeshire and they phone my parents because i'm 16. My, my brother answers the phone, who's three years younger than me. He's a retired chief superintendent now. And he says, um, 
My dad says, who was that? He said, oh, it's Paul. Oh, yeah, where is he? Oh, he's going to be late. Oh, all right, okay. What do you mean he's going to be late? And my brother says, he tells the truth, you know. Turns out I was the only person on that bus that had never, ever, ever been arrested. There was one bloke who'd been arrested during the... Um, <laughs> he got arrested. They put us all in, his, in, the, in the cells. Oh, when we, when we turn up into the custody suite, they've got this courtyard and there was a guy, he's dead now. Um, he starts, the birdie song was in the chart, so he just walks out into the middle of the thing. <laughs> so, of course, everyone joined in. We get thrown in the cells and this guy's sitting there crying and I'm not I'm not best impressed because actually I wanted to be a police officer. I didn't want to get involved in any tr any trouble. That's all I really wanted to do. Um, he says, well, I, I have been arrested. I'm sitting there going, I've never been arrested. I've never been arrested. Oh, I've been arrested. He said, I got in a fountain during the uh, royal wedding, which had taken place in the July of 81. Um, as luck would have it, the guy put his hands up. I got released. We get a police escort back into Colchester from Cambridge because they're obviously worried about anything else. I get to Colchester thinking it's like three o'clock in the morning. I had to walk eight miles home. There was no way my old man was going to come and pick me up. There was not, not whilst my backside points downwards. Was it? And that was a salutary lesson because actually I didn't want to be locked up. Going in a cell is the worst feeling ever. It is a question for you before we finish. Have you ever broken the speed limit? Of course I have. Have you oh. ever drunk drive? No. I am I am so anti drink driving. I am just I am the world's worst. I am I will I'll play around a golf and I'll have a cup of tea. I won't even have one beer. I I am absolutely so against drink driving. Okay, because um, you've seen what it caused. Um have, what else have you done? What other laws have you broken? I'm not gonna tell you all that. <laughs> I was a good-looking chap once. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here to make confessions. It, <laughs> you know, we're, we're all human. We're all fallible. Um, what yeah. happens? What happens? Just before we finish, what happens to a policeman like Derek Chauvin when he goes to jail? How will his experience be different? You wouldn't want to be him. How will it be different? Well, uh, let me tell you, in the UK, um, it's bad. I mean, it is bad. Uh, the, the guys that I was talking about earlier on with the Redstone stuff, they got remanded in custody. A bit over the top, to be fair, but they got remanded in custody. Um, I know for a fact they had broken glass put into their food, they had urine in their tea. You know, it was horrendous. Wow. Chauvin will be... Um, bear in mind what he's been convicted of. He will be having the worst time ever. Even in solitary confinement, he's going to be. Um, yeah, he's going to have it. He's going to have it tough. The, I suppose the easiest way for him to get through is to take his own life, and I suppose that happens, doesn't it? Do you know what that does happen? I, you know, that, and that's awful. I hope he doesn't. But um, yeah, it's that it does happen. If if it were me, I would. If I'm mm. perfectly honest with you, I couldn't think of anything worse than going to jail. Um, no, he's, he's going to be somebody's bitch. Mm. Well, you make your bed sometimes, don't you? Yes, I suppose you do. Paul Maleri, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show this afternoon. It's been fantastic talking me. to you. It's, you're a bundle of fun and I really appreciate your time.
any any time and you know if you if you ever need us again give us a shout i'd be more than pleased to and if you're ever back in the uk um i'll buy you a beer somewhere if you've enjoyed listening to this and you're listening right now on itunes then leave me a five-star rating if you would please if you're listening to this on any other podcasting platform then to follow to leave some comments anything you can do to help promote this share it with go share it with two people and hopefully more people can get the benefit of this fantastic content so it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.